Okay, so the first presidential debate for the GOP 2024 field is now in the can, even though the frontrunner in the race was not on the stage. And everyone wants to know what to make of it. Who fared best? Who gained the most? Who lost the most? Where do we go from here? Hi, everyone. I'm Jamie Dury, and welcome to another episode of the Jamie Dury Show podcast. If you've not already done so, please subscribe to the show. And you can do so in one of several easy ways. You can either use your native podcast aggregator app in either your iPhone or your Google device, whichever one you use, and you can just simply subscribe that way. Or you can download the free Podbean app in either of the two app stores on those devices. Podbean is our hosting service, and you could subscribe that way. Whichever way you choose to subscribe, you'll be able to leave comments, uh, leave reviews. You'll be notified when the new uh, episode is uploaded and including our new feature, which is our morning update uh, on days when we plan to do a podcast, which is most days, we give you a morning update, letting you know what you can expect in uh, the main broadcast later in the day. It's quick. It's fast. Uh, they're never more than two minutes in length. Usually they're about a minute, minute and a half. So it gives you an idea if it's something you think you might want to tune into so you don't miss anything. So please subscribe, share the show with friends, give us a review. The more reviews we get, the more we can offer you. We try and do a good job. So give us a five-star review uh, and we would appreciate it. Also, if you have a question for me or a topic you'd like me to cover, please do not hesitate to email me at Dury. 1776 at gmail.com. That's Jamie Dury at 1776 gmail.com. Okay, so on to the debate stage. Well, in Wisconsin the other night, we had eight candidates on the debate stage. For those of you who don't know who they were, we had Ron DeSantis. We had Vivek Ramaswamy, Ron DeSantis, of course, the governor of Florida. Vivek Ramaswamy, the um, tech mogul who's now a turned politician. Former uh, Indiana governor and former VP Mike Pence. Nikki Haley, former ambassador to the UN and also governor. Tim Scott, the senator from South Carolina. Chris Christie, the former New Jersey governor. Doug Burgum, the governor of North Dakota. And former Arkansas governor, Asa Hutchinson. Now, right off the bat, I can tell you some names you can just scratch off. People that have no chance of getting the nomination and will never be elected president. Asa Hutchinson, you could forget it. He won't be around much longer on the campaign trail. Uh, Doug Burgum, he's not going anywhere. Um, Tim Scott is a true gentleman, and he is an American success story, the senator from South Carolina. I like him a lot. I think he's a good man with a good heart, and he's smart. Uh, But I just don't think he has enough support, enough broad-based appeal just yet um, to successfully... uh, maneuver himself into the White House, although I think he may be a possibility in the future. He's young. uh, He's got youth on his side. He's very popular in his state. So I think he definitely has a future in the GOP. I think more than anything, 
he's probably jockeying for vice president. And I've never understood that. I've never understood why anyone who has a Senate position with no term limits, although there should be term limits for all of them, would ever want to become vice president. Because in all the years, um, trying to think, since 2000, since about 1850, I think it was like about 150 years. Well, I know they said about 150 years back at the turn of the century when George W. Bush was running for president. Up to that time, no sitting vice president had ever been reelected, had ever been elected to the presidency from the vice presidential spot, with the exception of Harry Truman, and that's only because FDR was an extremely popular president, and George Herbert Walker Bush. Many vice presidents sought to run, and they all wind up losing. And those were the only two times in the preceding 150 years when that happened. So being the vice president isn't really a guarantee of being elected president, particularly, particularly if your president gets elected, re-elected, I meant to say. Uh, and even if he doesn't, it doesn't do well for you. If you're the vice president to a person who's a one-term president, uh, you're not going to get much traction as, as president, I don't think. You're not going to be able to differentiate, uh, differentiate yourself. You're certainly not going to run as the sitting vice president because that would mean you'd have to run against your own boss. You're not going to do that. So you'd have to be on the ticket for his reelection, lose, wait four years, and then run again. Now, in the alternative scenario, if you're on that ticket and you win re-election, well, then you have to try and run immediately following thereafter when your name is still uh, in the, the public eye. But very few times since we have term limits for the presidency, um, in fact, almost never, has one party controlled the White House for three terms in a row. The only time that's happened since FDR was when George Herbert Walker Bush succeeded Ronald Reagan after Ronald Reagan had two successful terms as president. And the only reason why George Herbert Walker Bush, in my opinion, was able to do that was because Ronald Reagan was an extremely popular president. And if he had been able to run for a third term, I believe the public would have voted for him. He won re-election in the biggest electoral landslide in the history of this country. The only state that he didn't carry was Minnesota, and that's only because his opponent, Walter Mondale, came from there. Uh, and, of course, he lost D.C. But every other state he carried. He got 525 out of 535 electoral votes. That's an electoral landslide record that still stands. And he had a significant percentage of the popular vote, I believe about 60%. So he would have, he would have won. And people thought they were getting a third term of Reagan, they quickly found out they didn't, which is why George Herbert Walker Bush was a one-term president. So why does anybody want the VP spot? I, I really don't know. If I were Tim Scott, I would just stay as senator from South Carolina, which I think he could do the most good, build his resume, and then down the road, I'd like to see him be president. So we've already dealt with three of the eight. Now let's go to uh, Nikki Haley. Nikki Haley, of course, is the um, former governor, um, former U.S. ambassador. Uh, she was a governor, then she became the U.S. ambassador. She was the only woman on the stage, and that's probably the most 
she had going for her. Nikki Haley is not dumb. She's smart. Uh, but again, doesn't have the broad base of support. Uh, and aside from making a couple of cute comments trying to attack Vivek Ramaswamy for a, um, a deficiency in foreign policy experience, and then that little cliche remark she made where she said, uh, there's an old saying, Margaret Thatcher said, if you want something said, ask a man. If you want something done, ask a woman. And everybody's like, ha, 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 and they applaud and everything like that. But I, I don't know how people in New York would feel if you ask them what they think that Hoople, Governor Hochul, has done. She has the uh, intellectual uh, capacity of a, of a flea. Uh, similarly, uh, Governor Whitmer in Michigan has done a terrible job as governor there. Uh, her predecessor, uh, Governor Granholm, she ran Michigan into the ground. So I don't think that that comment by uh, Nikki Haley bears closer scrutiny. So nice lady. Maybe she's jockeying for a vice presidential uh, slot. She would be a good selection as a VP for one of these men. She would not be good for Donald Trump. Donald Trump would never have her. She's probably uh, backstabbed him a little bit, but he would never have her as VP. But if somebody like uh, DeSantis were to get the nomination, which is not going to happen, but if it were, were to happen, she would be a good fit with DeSantis. Um, she might be a decent fit with Ramaswamy, but I don't think so. I think the fact that she is uh, distanced herself from Trump is going to kill you. And we're going to get to that in a second, uh, how all this plays in. Uh, in fact, you know, maybe we'll talk about it now. Because the first three, well, one more we have to hit. We want to hit Mike Pence. Mike Pence is dead. He's not going anywhere. Um, his career is over. Uh, as is the whale, Chris Christie. He's an angry man. Uh, he tried to diminish Vivek Ramaswamy. All he did was diminish himself. Uh, he's finished. Okay. But we're going to get to that. So all that leaves basically is DeSantis and Vivek Ramaswamy. But before I leave the Pence Christie um, analysis. I want to hit this a little more. And please, and I mean this sincerely, if you're listening to this podcast, please share this episode because nobody else is going to give you the perspective that I'm going to give you today with respect to these debates, the analysis of the Republican field, how Donald Trump plays into it, how all these people play into it, what's going to be the ticket or who's going to be the running mate and how I think this is all going to shake out. Nobody's going to give you this. So I'm telling you, you're going to hear it here first. And you may hear it only here because I've looked at other analyses that have been posted on YouTube and in the news by supposed experts, and none of them are going to give you the perspective that I'm going to give you right now. So listen up. One of the things I tell people and I do some motivational speaking as well, and I give advice to people in addition to having this podcast. I often pose a question. It's almost a rhetorical question, but it's a mental exercise. It's, again, it's, it's a, an attempt to have people get a sense of perspective. I ask them, if you're planning a trip, if you're trying to go someplace, what is the first thing you need to know? And everyone always says, well, you need to know where you're going. Well, no, because we already know where we're going. We're planning the trip. So that's, that's a given. But what's the first thing you need to know? Oh, uh, how are you going to get there? Well, you're close, but that's not it. Well, uh, are we flying? Are we driving? Oh, what's it going to cost? I says, you're all dancing around it. You're not getting it. 
the first thing you need to know is where you are. Most people don't know where they are. And I asked this question, I posed this question as sort of a rhetorical device and a device for introspection because it's applicable to not simply a trip. That's just to illustrate the point. It's applicable to all areas of life. If you don't know where you are in life, you can't plot a course to improve your life or elevate yourself or get where you want to go. So what you have to understand is where the GOP is right now, where the base of the Republican Party is right now. And whether you like it or not, and whether you like him or not, Donald Trump is the Republican Party. His supporters are the base of the Republican Party. You don't get them, you're not winning an election, period. You alienate them, you're not winning an election, period. Christie has alienated the GOP, the MAGA people. They hate him. He's a dead whale. You might as well cart him off like under the Marine Mammal Act. He's finished. Mike Pence is finished for the same reason. Nikki Haley's got a little more life because she was, she's a woman. They won't go after quite as much, but she sort of distanced herself and said some anti-Trump things. She's not going anywhere either. She may, if for whatever reason, Donald Trump is not in the race and somehow DeSantis gets the nomination, she may be a VP choice, but that's a very, very unlikely scenario. She's not going anywhere. So you can knock out Christie. You can knock out Pence for the reason I just uh, mentioned. Uh, the North Dakota governor, Doug Burgum, and Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson, I don't even know why they're there. They're just out there on a Hail Mary testing the waters. They'll be gone soon, so knock them out. So four of them are gone. I already gave you my analysis of Tim Scott. I have nothing but admiration for the man. Love to see him be uh, president someday. I just don't think now is the time. So that deals with Tim Scott, Governor Christie, uh, Hutchinson, Burgum, and Pence, and Haley. So that leaves us to the only two relevant people. And these really are the only two relevant people who were on that stage, Governor Ron DeSantis and entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy. So everyone wants to know, who was the big winner? Who was the big winner? Who was the big loser last night? Well, the biggest loser was DeSantis. A lot of people saying he's a winner. I say he's the biggest loser because he had the most to lose, because he's already number two in the polls. Uh, Christie, he lost, but Christie really can't say lost because he's a never was. All he did was just seal his fate that he lost by, by his stupid comments uh, and uh, trying to demean Donald Trump, saying, oh, we can't allow this conduct. No, we have to can't normalize this conduct. I never realized that speaking your mind and questioning the results of an election uh, makes you a criminal and not simply an exercise of your First Amendment privilege, because that's exactly what it is. It's your exercise of your First Amendment rights. But DeSantis, uh, if you look at the people that show up at his fundraisers, he's the establishment candidate. I don't care what they say about him being conservative, and he did a very good job in Florida during the pandemic. He's done a very good job uh, in Florida as a whole, 
as governor, but he also has a more conservative electorate than a lot of people do in his position in other states in the country. So he has support of the population. He has a conservative legislature. So he was able to do these conservative things. But it's interesting to remind people that if it were not for Donald Trump supporting him, he probably never would have been elected to the governorship in the first place. He only won by half a percentage point, and that's only because Donald Trump endorsed him. So without Trump's support, he wouldn't even be the governor of Florida. But his supporters, the, the fundraisers that he runs, the people that go there, they're the same people that have been going to these establishment GOP fundraisers for presidents for years. This is the uh, not just my information, but the information that's being reported by many political watchers who appear on these talk shows and appear on um, radio, talk radio, and give interviews to the hosts and explain all this. So uh, I, I don't think he's a very good campaigner either. On the national scene, I don't think he's going to do very well. His strength right now is that he's the Florida governor. Florida's done well. Florida is a state that is growing in population, therefore growing in relevancy. And so he's really like the default candidate uh, if, if Trump wasn't the nominee. At least that's what it started out to be. He was the default candidate. That has changed in my view. I've said from the beginning that DeSantis should not have run because Trump was going to go for the nomination. And once Trump is in it, it's his for the taking. No one is going to take the GOP nomination from Donald Trump. That's a foregone conclusion. He's going to be the nominee. There's nothing they can do about it. The only thing that can take him out is if he himself decides to drop out of the race. And that is not happening. I think that DeSantis and a lot of these people are simply getting in hoping that something happens to Trump, that either he takes himself out of the race or something takes him out of the race, and therefore maybe they have a shot. But absent that, not going to happen. That being the case, why would you want to be in the race? If you're someone like DeSantis, who has a future in the GOP, why, when you're sitting on top of your game as the Republican governor, a successful Republican governor of a very populated an important state, why would you run for president, lose the nomination to a man whose inevitability is almost assured, and then go back to being governor? Because now you're damaging yourself in a future run. All of these people would have been better off to sit it out. Nor is it to their advantage to run and lobby for a VP slot in Trump's administration. First of all, with the bad blood that's been happening between him and Trump, there's no way Trump is making Ron DeSantis his VP choice. A VP choice has to bring something to the table. It's either got to bring in a population demographic that you otherwise might not access to the fullest extent you should, or guaranteed delivery of a particular state. Donald Trump does not need Ron DeSantis's help to win the state of Florida. He's assured to win the state of Florida. He won it handily in his re-election He won it in his initial election. Donald Trump is not losing the state of Florida. On the other hand, Trump, because he's a second-term president and can't run again, is going to have to engage in bloodletting to right this ship that used to be the United States of America, to clean house, to get rid of these treasonous uh, bureaucrats that are in, in power. And none of these people that have a reasonable chance of ever becoming president in the future, the Tim Scotts, the Ron DeSantis's, 
none of them should have anything to do with that process. They should distance themselves from it so that they can differentiate themselves from it, if need be, in a future run at the office. So, that's my position on those seven. Now we get to Vivek Ramaswamy. How can we explain him? Vivek Ramaswamy is doing much better than people thought he was doing. And he seems to be increasing it. I'm going to tell you why. Because Vivek Ramaswamy is the most Trump-like, maybe not in temperament, but in policy and other areas, Vivek Ramaswamy is the most Trump-like of the eight candidates that were on that debate stage. He's not a politician. He's a businessman. He was a very successful businessman. He wouldn't knuckle under to the woke mob when everybody wanted him to buck up and give money to Black Lives Matter and all these other fringe lunatic groups that were only front for uh, leftists and not interested in Black Lives Mattering at all. And he's an attorney, and he has vowed that if elected, he will dismantle the unlawful administrative state, meaning these bureaucracies that our elected officials, as I've told you in the past, have put in place so that they have plausible deniability and places like the EPA and other uh, regulatory agencies run your life and there's nothing you can do about it because they're unelected, you can't vote them out, you can't challenge them, you can't do anything. And I predict that Vivek Ramaswamy is going to be a potent force in American politics in the future. In fact, the reasons why he was attacked the way he was as viciously by Nikki Haley and by uh, Chris Christie and others on that stage last night, and Mike Pence included, is precisely because they recognized, even though no one else was talking about it, they recognized exactly what I said. Because in my opinion, remember I said a few moments ago how Ron DeSantis got in there because he was going to, going to be the um, the de facto nominee if Trump were to be eliminated or had to get out of the race for some reason? Well, not anymore. Now that Vivek Ramaswamy is in there, I think they all know that if for some reason Trump were out of the race for whatever reason, God forbid, is incarcerated, uh, should suffer a, a heart attack or a medical emergency or takes himself out of the race, heaven forbid, most of the MAGA supporters will not gravitate to these other people. And I don't predict they'll gravitate towards DeSantis. They will gravitate towards Ramaswamy. He'll be the man they have to contend with because he's the man that has said he would go with the immigration policy. He's the only one saying we need one election day, not election weeks, no absentee ballots, all the elections on one day so we have integrity in our election process. He's the one who's swearing to dismantle the unlawful administrative state. None of the others are. So they all recognized on that stage last night that Ramaswamy is the real threat if somehow Trump is taken out of the equation. And that's why they were going after him. Now, Nikki Haley can try and pick on him and saying he's short on foreign policy. Donald Trump was a little short on foreign policy when he, as he was running, but he was a quick study. Ramaswamy will be a quick study. You don't get the kind of money that Ramaswamy has accumulated. You don't get the kind of degrees that he has and graduate 
law school with honors from Harvard. You, you don't have the kind of resume he has by being a dummy. He will educate himself in the process as things move along. He will, be, And he's very, very good at, at being an administrator because he ran a big company. Most of these people haven't run anything, uh, anything that has to make a profit. They've all run governments to a degree. Haley ran a government. Uh, DeSantis has run a government. Christie's run a government. He ran it to the ground, by the way. So uh, Ramaswamy, in my opinion, was the big winner. Now, in some of the analysis that we're getting, and I don't, I'd like to see the internals on these polls because I don't see how they add up. They're trying to say that uh, Donald Trump lost some support after last night's debate. I don't know how they're calculating these numbers. They're saying that um, Nikki Haley, Vivek Ramaswamy, and Ron DeSantis all gained support while Trump lost support. Now, listen to these numbers. They're saying that uh, Nikki Haley received the biggest bump, a 17-point increase from 29% support before the debate to 46% after the debate. Okay. Now, Mr. Ramaswamy got the second biggest bump increasing his support by six percentage points from the 40% that he had ahead of the debate to 46%. Oh, that's 46 for him. That's 46 for Nikki Haley. Well, 46 and 46 is 92%. Okay. DeSantis increased a bump of five percentage points from 62 to 67. Well, how does he get 67 if the other two have 92 combined, I, I don't understand how they're breaking this down. Uh, I'm sure there's an explanation, but they're not making it clear by the way they're looking at this. And they're saying Donald Trump got 66% before the debate. Now he's got 61 after. That's not the, the numbers that I was reading. I was looking at the numbers of the, uh, the polling as a whole. Donald Trump had something like 46%. The closest to him was DeSantis with 19%, and everybody else was below that, and all of it, of course, adding up to 100%. That's the traditional way you look at support. So by those numbers, Donald Trump's support, not only at 46% in such a crowded field, is astounding, but his margin of 23% to his next closest supporter eclipses by 4%, the percentage of support that person got, Ron DeSantis. Donald Trump was 23 percentage points ahead of his closest rival, Ron DeSantis, who only has 19 percentage points. So I don't know what they're looking at. I'd love to see the internals on these polls. Meanwhile, this poll consisted of 775 possible GOP voters who tuned into the debate. Well, right there, that should tell you something, because a lot of the people who are big Trump supporters, didn't even bother to tune into the debate. To the debate. I did not. Uh, I had more important things to do than sitting there and watching that sideshow. I did watch the relevant clips. I read every bit of analysis I could, uh, rather than have to sit there for those two hours and listen to the whale, Chris Christie and Mike Pence try and bloviate and talk about constitutional duties and everything else. So I would say this, this is a skewed sample. Most of the people who really count, the Trump supporters, the MAGA people, were not watching the debate. They were watching the interview with Tucker Carlson uh, on, on Twitter. That's what they were watching. I mean, they couldn't be bothered 
watching the uh, Christie Pence show. And just one more note on Chris Christie. I've mentioned this in past shows, but I can't resist mentioning it again. You know, a lot of people, including Vivek Ramaswamy, point to the, t- the time that Christie gave Barack Obama a big hug uh, at the time of Hurricane Sandy. And a lot of people credited that moment um, with helping Barack Obama get reelected. Because remember something, Barack Obama was reelected with three million fewer votes in 2012 than he originally received when he was elected initially in 2008. The same can't be said for President Trump. He increased his vote total by almost 10 million. So I refuse to believe that Trump lost because he was unpopular. I mean, when, it's one thing if a person loses votes, you can say, oh, they went to somebody else. But when you gain votes, it's very difficult to explain. But if, if he had not done that, uh, there's a real possibility that uh, Barack Obama might not have gotten reelected and, and um, Mitt Romney might have won because uh, it gave Obama the chance to look uh, presidential, like he was doing something significant. So a lot of people point to that as the time when Christie really shot himself in the foot with the GOP base. Not to me. I I saw a problem before then. The real problem, I think, with Christie, where he showed to me he didn't didn't have what it takes to be on the national scene, was when he held that stupid, ill-advised press conference after the conviction of those two people in the Bridgegate scandal. You remember when he ordered something done with the traffic to screw up um, traffic in Fort Lee because the Fort Lee mayor didn't support him in his re-election bid? Well, if you had nothing to do with it, you go out there, you start the press conference off like he did and say, look, I didn't have anything to do with this. I didn't order this. I didn't know about it. But I am the governor, and I am accountable. I'll I'll take responsibility. And you walk off. He spent two hours telling everybody and repeating himself. I I am accountable. Uh, I'm accountable. I didn't didn't know it, but I'm accountable. After you spent the two hours telling everyone how you didn't do it, you didn't know about it, and you were accountable, and it took you two hours to explain this, everyone there, including myself, knew you had done it. So he doesn't know when to shut up, and he still hasn't learned the lesson. He still doesn't know when to shut up. So he's finished. Now, the GOP debate, according to the numbers that I've been able to find, say that about 25 million people tuned in to watch that debate. That's a substantial number of people. Just to give you an idea, uh, even a good cable news show like Tucker Carlson, which was the most popular cable news show, it was on Fox News, was the highest viewership of any cable news show. Used to get about 3 million viewers a night. That's high. And this debate got 25 million viewers. So obviously it was something people were interested in. But lest you doubt me when I proclaim that Donald Trump is still the man to beat and he is going to be the GOP nominee... While this debate was going on, Donald Trump was giving an interview on Twitter to Tucker Carlson. That interview on Twitter, as of just before my recording this show, had received 256 million views, more than 10 times the listening audience of the debate. So if you have any doubts as to who is going to be the GOP nominee, you can put them away. It's going to be Donald Trump. Absent some unforeseen event, 
it's going to be Donald Trump. No one is going to be able to stop that. Donald Trump is going to be allowed to run. There is no law that says he can't run, even if he's convicted. He could theoretically run even if he were in prison. And I think that once he emerges as the GOP nominee, even if he were to be convicted on something, and I think he's going to have to be left out on appeal because they have to appeal these things, and, I th- and even Dershowitz has said all these things are very, very, very um, sketchy indictments that will fail under the scrutiny of an appellate process. They would have to let him remain out on appeal, uh, and uh, if they would not to let him remain out and impede his ability to campaign, that would be election interference. I, I think we're, we're in uncharted waters here, but anyway you slice it, Donald Trump is going to be the nominee. All these other people are just playing games. So that's what's going to happen. And the fact that more than 10 times the people who viewed the debate were actually watching the interview shows you where their real interest lies. Their interest lies in Donald Trump and seeing him return to the White House. Because what's going on right now is not something people can stomach. Gas prices pushing $4 a gallon, exceeding $4 a gallon in most places. People spending a fortune for little things that they never had to spend for before. Uh, gas was a dollar eighty-seven when Trump was president. Uh, employment was plentiful. We're living in in, in very very weak, uh, troubled time. We've never been as weak uh, as we are right now with respect to um, our global opponents like the Chinese, the North Koreans, and the Russians. And somebody has to put his back on top, and it's not going to be anybody else except Donald Trump. Now, on to the second part of this uh, post-debate analysis. Now, traditionally, when you have a campaign for president, one of the candidates who doesn't make their party's nomination typically winds up becoming the VP. That happened with Reagan and Bush. Uh, Bush opposed Ronald Reagan, even called some of what he proposed to do, voodoo economics, but they found common ground. And then, of course, after uh, he became VP, he wound up idolizing Reagan, thought he was a phenomenal politician, Uh, but he became the VP running mate. This has happened uh, many times throughout history. In this particular case, for all the reasons I mentioned earlier, the reasons why none of them should get involved, you're not going to see any of these people become the vice presidential nominee for Donald Trump. I'm not saying that Tim Scott couldn't be the nominee. I just think he shouldn't be. Not because he's not competent or up to the job. I don't think he should damage himself by taking that position because he has a future as a potential U.S. president and as a continued senator, if he wishes to be. And I think he should stay clear of the bloodletting, as I said, that uh, a second term of Trump would have to engage in in order to clean house and get the corruption out of this government and drain this swamp once and for all. So it's going to have to be someone else. Now, that being the case and using that uh, juxtaposed with the traditional role of the, of the VP, which is to bring in more people into the tent, appeal to certain voting demographic groups, or deliver a particular state because of popularity you have in that state or if you emanate from that state. 
I'm looking at people like Tulsi Gabbard, who's a, a very, very bright woman. She's um, a former veteran. She is from Hawaii, uh, and she changed parties from Democrat to independent because she thought her party moved too far left. That's going to resonate with people. There are a lot of Democrats. Not every Democrat is a lunatic. Maybe here in the New York area, you have a bunch of uber leftists that think, you know, these, these, these valley girl type was, oh, isn't Biden doing a great job? You know, and, and these Dexter types, the tech people, yeah, Biden's doing a great job. Well, you must be smoking something if you think he's doing a great job. You really, you have no sense of perspective. But in other parts of the country, in farm country, other places where Democrats are a little more even keeled, uh, they don't think that Biden's doing a great job. They think a lot of these issues, these transgender issues, they're getting a little bit extreme. The government's getting too much involved in social engineering and they're put off by it. And so they might gravitate to someone or identify with someone who felt the same way as they did and left their party in favor of becoming an independent. So there's a lot to recommend Tulsi Gabbard. She's also a woman, a very beautiful woman. She will appeal to men and she will appeal to women who would like to see a woman vice president and somebody that can actually speak in a coherent sentence, unlike Kamala Harris. So that's a potential. But... There is one person out there that I think is a very unique choice and would be the perfect choice for Donald Trump. And that, as I said, for those of you who didn't hear the other show I did last week, is Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is an extraordinary man. He's very independent. He's not afraid of a fight. He speaks his mind. Uh, he comes from a, a long history of, of politicians. Uh, he's spoken out against the government. He believes the CIA assassinated uh, his uncle. He believes there were forces involved in the government involved in the assassination of his father. Uh, he was usually very left of center, but he's an outdoorsman. He's a a sportsman, a falconer, well-rounded man, and he's willing to admit when he's wrong or when something needs to be changed. He recently visited the border, and having been a proponent of the immigration and an opponent of the Trump wall, when he spent time down at the border just a few weeks ago, he spent three days down there, and he said it took him three days to fully comprehend what he was seeing. He said he saw people coming from all over the world through that border, not just people from Latin America or Mexico, but people from Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, all these different places. So he realized what's happening, and he says we have to have legal immigration at a sustainable level that doesn't strain social resources. And he's now said, admittedly, that he has adopted the conservative position towards immigration and believes we have to restrict it and stop what's happening. We have to stop this flood. And while he doesn't agree that we necessarily need a 2,200-mile uh, barrier, he does agree that Trump's wall is not a, a bad idea or a wrong idea and that a substantial barrier is needed over much of the southern border, particularly in the areas that are very populated, where the terrain is not so 
uh, intimidating and imposing that people could scale it were it not for a wall. If there's the extreme mountain ranges making it almost impossible for people to to crawl over, uh, perhaps in those areas the barriers are not necessarily necessary, that nature's natural barrier may be enough. But he does agree that a barrier has to be erected and that he has come to the conservative position. Donald Trump has made statements that he likes him. Robert F. Kennedy has made statements that he's glad that Trump likes him. And I can see, as I said last week, Trump inviting Robert Kennedy to Bedminster or Mar-a-Lago and having a dinner with him and saying, look, you know you're never going to get your party's nomination. They hate you. They're stacking the deck against you. But I think you can do some good for the country. And I think you can help me do some good for the country. Why don't we join forces, even though we don't agree on everything? I think we can find enough common ground on enough things that perhaps we can right this ship. That would scare the Democratic Party to its core. The Democratic Party, which has gone so left that it's alienated a member of maybe its most prestigious family, a member of the Kennedy family, Robert F. Kennedy. This is a family that had a president. It had a senator. A man who was running for president was assassinated and had a third member, whom I never cared for, Ted Kennedy, who was also a senator. It was a big political family. And when you can drive them out of your tent, you know you've gone too far. This would have uh, uh, reverberations throughout the party and I think would, would scare the Democrats to death because the Democrats right now are a party of corruption and we really do need to clean house in that party. And a lot of Democrats are starting to realize it. They're distancing themselves from some of these extreme policy uh, positions. And just to show you, I wanted to leave you with a little illustration of what the Democratic Party thinks is okay. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris were all on board for electric buses, and they promoted this company, held press conferences talking about how we're behind China and you're going to get us back in the game, Proterra. Proterra was the biggest electric bus company. Supposedly they had industry-leading electric vehicle technology. And they were going to bring us into the future, get rid of diesel buses, and let us have an electric bus fleet. And they were subsidized by the federal government almost to the tune of, I think, about $8 billion, much in the way that shell company Solyndra, the solar company, was uh, funded by Obama. They went bankrupt, stole all the money. Nobody ever was held accountable. Nobody has heard any more since. Well, guess what? Proterra just filed for bankruptcy. And all the $8 billion is gone. Why? Well, they're citing a lot of things. They're citing um, problems in the industry. Quote, while our best-in-class EV and battery technologies have set an industry standard, we have faced various market and macroeconomic headwinds that have impacted our ability to efficiently scale all of our opportunities simultaneously. So they've filed a Chapter 11 petition. It's listing its assets and liabilities uh, of at least $500 million. Listen, the shares have fallen 
In June 2021, the company went public. It did this through a merger with a blank check company. At that time, the shares were $15. At the writing of this article I'm quoting from, they were down to two. I just heard they're now down to 17 cents. Now, if it's true what Mr. Joyce said, that they had the best-in-class EV and battery technologies and set an industry standard, then I would propose to you people who are very much into the green movement that that is proof positive that the electric vehicle uh, is not the solution to the problem, it's not the solution to our woes, and it's not viable. Why? Because here's some of the reasons why uh, Proterra really went bankrupt. In California, their buses caught fire. In Philadelphia, their buses broke down. In Alaska, they froze. The battery froze to the point where they couldn't generate enough power and they couldn't move. And in Minnesota, they couldn't make it up the hills. They stalled on the hills. And when an EV bus breaks down, it takes approximately one year to fix it because the parts are so rare. Well, If these EVs are plagued with all of these problems, why would the Democrats, why would Joe Biden invest $8 billion of taxpayer money? Well, Fox News host Jesse Waters covered this recently, and he has an answer for us. Listen. Because it was a pump and dump scheme. Al Gore had millions invested in the company while he was lobbying the White House to herald it. George Soros had over 20 million invested in Proterra. Jennifer Granholm, Biden's energy secretary, sat on the company's board. She held stock in Proterra while she was secretary and then sold it for about one and a half mil. Joe Biden even put the Proterra CEO on a prestigious government board. And reports say Proterra insiders dumped their stock before the company went bankrupt. This was a political pump and dump. Cash out before the crash. Proterra stock is now worth 17 cents a share. This is like Solyndra. House Republicans need to launch an immediate investigation into this taxpayer-funded scam that Biden donors and cronies made a fortune from. And there you have it. So if you're still wondering why Trump continues to surge in the polls and why outsiders like Vivek Ramaswamy are gaining support among the general electorate, it's precisely because of things like this. This whole episode with Proterra can serve as a paradigm for everything that's going on with our government, particularly the Democratic Party. Everything is a swamp in Washington. Taxpayer money is being literally pissed away on every frivolous thing just so they can profit. Could you imagine the Secretary of Energy former Governor Granholm of Michigan, is sitting on the board of a company that the government is funding and then cashes out her stock in this pump-and-dump scheme before it goes belly up to the tune of a million and a half dollars? Could you imagine what the news media would be saying if it was a Trump that did that, either Donald Jr. or Eric Trump or anybody in the Trump uh, orbit? But you've heard nothing about this, have you, on the mainstream media? Because the mainstream media and the Democratic Party are inextricably linked. They are two sides 
of the same coin. And that's why you need to listen to shows like this and other independent sources of news if you want to get truth and you want to get information that's not being covered anyplace else. Because you're certainly not going to get it on CNN, MSNBC, and even increasingly, you're not going to get it on Fox either. But I'm sure some of you probably still don't believe this story about the green energy or the electric bus. So I'm going to give you a piece of advice because I try to help my fellow Americans. So if you're one of those people who still thinks an electric bus is going to be carrying you to work every day and going to be carrying you to your critical appointments, I have a little bit of advice for you. Invest in a good pair of shoes because you're going to be walking. For the Jamie Dury Show, I'm Jamie Dury.